Oasis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. My guest today, I've been looking forward to this conversation for, well, actually a couple weeks now that we've had it scheduled. I have Barbara Kellerman with us today. She is the James McGregor Burns Lecturer in Leadership at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. That's a mouthful. And, uh, you know, Barbara, I've been following your work for years, ever since the publication of Multidisciplinary Perspectives. And uh, James McGregor Burns wrote the foreword to that book. Would you tell us a quick story about Jim Burns that maybe our listeners don't know? Can you think of anything? Well, I think I'll, it won't be so much a story as uh, it will be a comment on him. Uh, you know, some of the old timers have since passed, but his place in the uh, leadership firmament, I think, is really secure. He came out with a book in 1978, I'm sure you know, of course, called Leadership, that I think was the single volume that put leadership as an area, which is really what interests me, as an area of intellectual inquiry on the map. Since then, what I call the leadership industry has gone in a, I would argue, somewhat different direction. It's focused very heavily on teaching people how to lead, which is not actually what Jim centered on. He centered on leadership, as I said, as a multidisciplinary, complex area to be uncovered, full of frustrations, but endlessly interesting. That book still stands on its own. It's a seminal volume, whereas, you know, 99.9% of other leadership works die on the vine, or at least within a few years of their publication. That one really does remain a classic. So if any of your listeners are interested in leadership as a subject to be explored from every possible direction, I would recommend Burns's leadership, even though it's now whatever, I'd have to count, whatever number of years old. <laughs> well, and I love your description of, of endlessly interesting. And so we're going to explore some of those nooks and crannies today. One of the books that I absolutely love that you wrote was called Bad Leadership. And what I loved most about that book, it may be somewhat peculiar, but you, you also discussed this concept in professionalizing leadership. But this relationship between the leader, the followers, and the context, that it's hard to separate any one of those from the other. And so whether it was Bill Clinton or Marion Barry or any of the other individuals that you featured in certain elements of that book, uh, we looked at the leader, that individual, the followers, who was, who was around them and in some cases enabling them, and then the context, what was happening in the context that allowed this to occur. Would you talk a little bit about that and how you think about that as, as foundational to doing this work that we're doing? Well, you're using the perfect word, Scott. I never talk when you use the word foundational. 
I never just talk about leadership anymore. I never write about leadership anymore. I always talk about the leadership system. Yes. That is, as you said, it's it's slightly more complicated than focusing only on the leader, which is what most of us tend to do, uh, but not a lot. It has instead of one component to you know, zero in, laser like on. It has three, as you said, leaders, followers, and context. To me, they're absolutely indivisible, uh, inseparable, intrinsically threaded and entwined with each other. How do you talk about leaders or leadership without talking about followers or followership? And how do you talk about leaders and followers together without situating them in the contexts, plural. I mean, I should say it's never just a single context. Yeah. It's, it's like this series of concentric circles. So one is in an immediate context, but then a context that is somewhat more, you know, I could be teaching in Cambridge and then I would be at Harvard. Harvard is in Cambridge. Cambridge is in Massachusetts. Massachusetts is in the United States. And it just continues on and on. And uh, of course, it's also temporal. So what we're talking about in 2020 would necessarily be different from what it was five years ago or 10 years ago, not to speak of 50 years ago, and it will again be different five years from now. In Professionalizing Leadership book, which was my homework for this week, and I finished it and I loved it, you write about a few things that I'd love to touch upon that that also kind of goes along with leader followers contexts. But another challenge that we have in this domain, uh, you call it the leadership industry, uh, the challenge of of definitions and definitional challenges that is it leadership studies, leadership learning, leadership education, leadership development, leadership training, leadership experience. It's confusing. And and I think if, if we don't have a clear understanding of even some of our basic definitions, how do we ever move forward? It seems to me, can you, it seems to me that's the ground floor. <laughs> and then from there you start moving forward, but we haven't even built the ground floor. Can, can you think of something before even those basic definitions? Well, I, you know, people have been at this for at least 50 years since the so-called leadership industry. Yes, I do call it that because I think of it as largely a money-making proposition, <laughs> but that's a separate conversation. People have been struggling with the issue of definitions particularly of the word leader or leadership. What is a leader? The way I define it is completely different from the way virtually every one of my colleagues at Harvard defines it. As you very well know, Scott, there are literally, quite literally, hundreds of different definitions. So all I ask is when somebody talks or somebody writes, whether it's a student or a leadership expert, is that they make clear how they're using the word. Uh, Everybody is able to, has the right, since there are so many damn different definitions, uh, should feel free to define it as they wish. Just tell me what you mean. And you're right about the semantics. The semantics plague, for example, use of the word leadership versus use of the word management. mm -hmm. So there are many institutes and centers of leadership, and that's what they call themselves, and then they'll list the courses, and the courses have the word management in it, not the word leadership. And how is the poor student to know what is the difference between them? So we ourselves are incredibly guilty of this muddling. Uh, It seems a lost cause to try to clarify it and get people to use terms in a consistent way. But being aware of it is a help. And the last semantic issue I'll use, I'll draw your attention to, 
for your listeners' attention to is the word follower. As you know, uh, Scott, or probably know, I have struggled with that word, which interests me at least as much as does the word leader, for years now. And when I came out with a book called Followership in 28 or whatever it was, my publisher said to me, no, you can't call a book followership. People don't like that word. They don't know that word. But in English, the logical antonym of leader is follower. You can get, you can come up with euphemisms, constituents, and collaborators, and cohort, whatever it is. But again, in English, the logical antonym of leader is follower. However, it's important, as I do, to define follower by rank, which means that just as leaders don't always lead, so followers don't always follow. Yes. You can be in a position of being a subordinate, but that doesn't mean you necessarily act like one. Mm. Yeah, and and, and you, of course, you mentioned some of the work of Ira Chalef, and I, I love Ron Riggio. I had a conversation with him on a podcast a, a few months ago, and, mm-hmm. and he said that Ira's uh, standing up to and for our leaders. That's one of his favorites. Uh, favorite titles, right? The courageous followership, standing up to and for our leaders, right. and standing up to them when we need to and for them when it's appropriate, right? Right. But you earlier, Scott, uh, in passing, used the word enabler. So mm-hmm. a follower isn't necessarily standing up to or standing for. A follower uh, can be an enabler. And in fact, I'm writing a book. Now. I have a book coming out in the in September, but I'm writing another book now. And this one is actually called The Enablers. Wow. So I'm very interested in followers, not just who are noble and who stand up to leaders, but followers who enable leaders, particularly, obviously, bad leaders. Yes. Well, in the book, Professionalizing Leadership, it's an interesting, I'm writing a paper right now. And you talk about this in your book. If you look at the definitions or if you look at the mission statements and the purpose statements and the vision statements of the top 25 business schools in the country, I mean, pick your main list, but I just used U.S. News, top 25, 23 of the 25 have leadership in their mission or their vision. Yeah. And to your point, oftentimes that means that there's a class, (laughs) right? (laughs) A course on leadership. What do you think that is? Do you think, do you have a sense, because you write about AACSB and you write about business schools, some in this, in this volume. Do you think it's that some people are just constructing the definition of leadership as, well, if we give them a course on ethics and marketing and supply chain, then, and, and a course on leadership, then at the end, we're going to have a business leader. Is that kind of how they're making it up in their head? Is that, or are they, or the, well, are they genuinely thinking well, that they're- a- right? This is such a long, interesting question and a long response. It's been a terrific problem because business schools and schools of government, such as my own, the Harvard Kennedy School, they, as you're, as you're just saying, and I pointed this out also, these mission statements, that's what they say. They say it is their mission to, and I, I mentioned this in professionalizing leadership, Uh, In some cases, they say we're training leaders. In other cases, they say we're educating leaders. In other cases, they say they're developing leaders. Nobody ever bothers to distinguish among those three verbs. What do you mean when you say you're educating? What do you mean when you say you're training? So uh, it is astonishing to me how unprofessional (laughs) that is, uh, how leadership uh, has remained so incredibly elusive as a 
thing to be taught. Now, thing, what word do you want to use? Occupation, vocation. I would love to see it treated as a profession. Yeah. You know, it's it's a, a riddle to me why we spend all this time and trouble in developing, you know, doctors and lawyers and bus drivers and hairdressers. They all have to be credentialed. But you take a leadership course or two and you can say, okay, I'm a leader. At least you begin to think of you. It's just absurd to me. And I, without getting into anything political about Donald Trump, it can be say, said, whatever your political leanings, that he was elected to the highest position of leadership that Americans can confer on anyone without any, and I mean any, experience or expertise whatsoever. I mean, if you were going to have brain surgery, would you hire a physician? Would you, you know, have a physician do it who had zero experience or expertise? No, you wouldn't want someone to cut your hair who no. never cut anybody else's hair before. So there's something about how we treat leadership. We denigrate it by the way we try to educate for it because we educate that ineptly and incompletely. Mm -hmm. Although why that is, Again, very complicated question. It would take us a lot longer than the time we have to fully explore it. But it's a very, very interesting and important question. Because, you know, even AACSB, I think they have, they have their five paths forward. It's their vision statement. And, and it, one of them is something to the effect of, you know, being the leaders of leadership. And again, I, I'm, I'm really interested in understanding what that means and how that's even conceptualized. I, it, just even the conversation. What do you mean when you say that? Because to your point, uh, this is much more complex. It takes much greater intentionality. You do a lot to highlight the military in professionalizing leadership. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the military because I couldn't agree with you more that there probably isn't another institution when it comes to leadership. I was literally doing an interview this morning with a, a gentleman who taught for the general staff in command college. And he said, this is how he phrased his job. He said, uh, men and women needed to take this class before they could apply to become a lieutenant colonel. So this is lifelong learning embedded into the system at all levels. And of course, they're not perfect. Of course, it's not uh, a silver bullet. But would you talk a little bit about why the military does it better and your thoughts on that space? So... Of course, uh, you know, I said that in professionalizing leadership, but it's interesting that you agree with me. I don't even think there's any competition. You know, it's not no. like, gee, the military does it better, but right behind is who, what? Well, you uh, know, so I had a thought today. I was thinking yes. about this. Like yes. The accounting firms, maybe, they're, they're really big on feedback. They're really big on developing. They're very right. big on, on really kind of consistent check-ins and growth. That's the closest I can, again, from a leadership kind of slanted, right, off right. skills, growth. Yep. I don't know. I, I think it's an interesting comparison. I still think the military. No, it's not, it's not even so, close. <laughs> so let me just say, you know, we need to separate the military into at least two categories. One is somebody who's an officer training that is beginning at Annapolis or in Colorado Springs at, uh, at the Air Force Academy or at West versus even the non-commissioned officers. Even the non-commissioned officers get lifelong leadership training. But the ones at the academies, they get them as 18, 19-year-olds, and they give them an extremely rigorous 
undergraduate education, much of which is very deliberately leadership oriented, and much of which is into liberal arts. Okay. To me, that is, that's the way to do it. So if you look at how the great ancient teachers, talking about Plato and Confucius, even Machiavelli, Lao Tzu, the way they taught leadership was from what we would now call a liberal arts perspective. And it was lifelong learning. You know, Plato felt you had to be about 50 before you would be sufficiently educated to be a leader, so to speak, of men. So um, I, I think we have, by the way, when business schools in this country started in the 19th century, they did try that. They, they began with a liberal arts approach. But somehow, for again, complicated set of reasons having to do with the private sector getting very involved, that kind of went by the board. So the business schools are not very different now from the schools of government. And they are light years away from the military, which gets people when they're young, gives them a rigorous, as I said earlier, undergraduate education, rigorous graduate education. But then again, to the earlier point, lifelong learning. And it's also close to the work. I mean, I think that's part of the challenge. I was having this conversation with a friend recently and, you know, an individual in medical school is close to medicine. They're close to yes. the work for four years. Yes. An attorney is close to the work. You, you might have a, an average MBA that's 23 or 24 years old, maybe hasn't had a lot of experience, isn't managing anyone or leading anyone or in a formal position. I should say, and they're not necessarily close to the work as we're educating them. So what happens yeah. if you educate me on cooking, but then I never really cook? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, a very good point, Scott. As you know, there's a thread in leadership learning that is very much to your point, which is about you know getting people to learn on the job. I would put that in, as you know from professionalizing leadership, I think all leadership learners should have three stages of their learning process. First one, ground floor, is leadership education. Yep. Second one is leadership training. And mm -hmm. third one is this leadership lifelong development. So I think your point is very well taken, and I would put that in the category of leadership training. Mm. Whereas the liberal arts, psychology, history, philosophy, politics, that would be under the rubric of leadership education. And to me, that should be, the, as far as I'm concerned, if I were queen of the leadership world, which I'm definitely not, that would be the ground floor. Well, I will be your first follower in, in <laughs> professionalizing leadership if you need someone to start the, start the movement. <laughs> I have one other thought, and then I'm going to ask you what you're thinking about now, what's top of mind for you right now. For some reason in my head, I have it that, in, and I don't have the book here, it's at, at my office, and I have not been in my office in, in months, but... Oh, yeah, I know the feeling. So in multidisciplinary perspectives, did Keegan and Leahy, you might not even remember this, because I'm, I'm causing you to go way back in the brain here. Did they write a little bit about parenting? Was that, was that a topic that they discussed? I can't, I, of course, I, uh, Bob Keegan has been a friend for many years, but I can't remember that chapter well enough. Yeah. Uh, to say whether they addressed it in that chapter. It's funny that you're saying that because I do think there's a lot about families and parenting yeah. that relates to leadership, by the way, at least as much of it relates to followership. You know, we learn to follow yes. in the family. Mommy yeah. and daddy say do this and do that. And generally, 
they expect us to do that. And then we go to school and the teacher says, do this and do that. And generally it is expected that we actually do it. So uh, there's a huge amount of that learning that takes place very early in life that is not actually addressed in the leadership literature either. Yes. And I had a really great conversation with Susan Murphy, who you may know, and she's kind of looked at it, you know, across the lifespan. My wife and I have been talking a lot about, because as we try and influence our children to have either a certain mindset about some of the times that we're in that are different and it can be challenging, or as we influence them to just be great citizens in the world, you know, we're a team and, and it's a leadership role. And to your point, I love how you're thinking about- But the- you're also teaching them about following. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I mean, it, it's <laughs> So literally, my wife, I think about two or three months ago, one of our daughters was trying to say something and I kind of cut her off. And my wife then cut me off. (laughs) She said, no, let her finish. And so my daughter then kind of continued her influence attempt with me. But it was was wonderful because I think you're exactly right. We're, We're training that, we're modeling that, we're developing that. We have very short amount of time, but I think that's a future book for you. How, how this early, the early stages forms. Yeah, it's very, been, it's very interesting. I, I think you should do it, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is, you're, you're absolutely right. It's very interesting. So yeah. I, I support the idea for sure. So what are you thinking about now? Right now, what are you, what are you, well, top uh, of mind I, I, as I mentioned, I, I have a, a new book coming out in September, which is called Leaders Who Lust. And the subtitle is Power, Money, Sex, Success, Legitimacy, and Legacy. So that's about the opposite, how we're taught generally leaders should have balance in their lives. And this is about leaders who have no balance whatsoever, who are driven, whose Mm. appetites are never satisfied. So that's a book just done, but because I can't seem to stop, I am starting, uh, I have started, I'm well into another book, which will come out in 2021. These are both going to be published by Cambridge University Press. And this one is called The Enablers, but I'm not sure, I think I mentioned that earlier, I'm not sure I should give you this title because you may you may cut me off immediately but it is very much uh, I don't usually do this but this book is entire first of all it's all as you can tell from the title just the main title the enablers it is all about followership actually yeah again you can't do followership without leadership but I will simply say that I am doing something I don't normally do except when I blog, which I blog pretty regularly, which is to write, this will be a book about the moment that we are in right now and Mm. about the role that the tendency seems to be given the difficult year we've had and are still having, obviously, whether it's the economic crisis or the COVID crisis or the, the political, social and political unrest in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. So it's been a tough year the world over been particularly tough in the United States. I say particularly because we're doing bad on all badly on all three fronts. So the question I'm asking, since everybody's so fixated on one person, which is of course Donald Trump, I'm asking the broader question of does it make sense to put this all on the shoulders for better and worse of one single individual? Or do we need to look at a larger cast of characters? How do we make sense of this moment? And the way we make sense of it is surely not to fixate only on the person at the top. It goes back to the leadership system. 
Yeah. We need to we need to look at the entire cast of characters and at the moment in which we find ourselves. And that's that will be fascinating because that gets to whether it's the media that gets to any number of different other components of that system. In, that's going to be fascinating to try and piece together. <laughs> I, I'm doing it as we, well, not literally as we speak, but I spent, you know, almost every day I try to spend some time oh, on it. Great. And I hope to be done with it in maybe September, October. Okay. So, Do you have, this, this is my last question. Do you have a favorite leadership quote? Uh, no, no one's ever asked me that. And a I favorite don't. quote, even if uh, you know, you may know Scott, and I'm going to worm out of your question by okay. enlarging the question. I have my favorite book that I've ever done is not my book. It's me editing the leadership classics. The book is called Essential Selections on Leap Power Authority on Influence. And it has what I call the great leadership literature. There is a great, you know, so much of the stuff that comes out is, how do I put this politely? Not very good. Gar- garbage is more direct. <laughs> but there is actually a great leadership literature, whether you're going back to the ancient Greeks, whether you're going back to the ancient Chinese, whether you're going to Lenin, whether you're going to Elizabeth Cady Stanton, whether you're going to John Locke, whether you're going to Larry Kramer, the great AIDS activist, some of the great speeches. So there is a great, great leadership literature. And I commend any of your listeners who have not thought about this. It's not, again, about my book. It is that in this book is a selection, my selection, of the greatest leadership literature since the beginning of time, really, at least in the Western canon, a little bit in the Eastern canon, and with some introductions and analysis by me, analyses by me. But again, rest assured, all of you out there in podcast land, in case you're discouraged at some of the drivel that you read about leadership or written by leadership experts, be assured there is a classical, great leadership literature out there, and I commend it to you. Awesome. Barbara, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today. We really, really appreciate it. Pleasure. I hope you have a wonderful wonderful rest of the summer. Take care. Be well. I know we all say that now. We never used to say be well. Now we go stay healthy, be well. Anyway, take care. Very good to talk to you, Scott. Thank you so much. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Barbara Kellerman talked about how she doesn't really talk about leadership anymore. She talks about what she says is the leadership system. That is the leader, the followers, and the contexts, uh, multiple contexts that, that we are embedded in. And I thought that was really, really fascinating. I think it's a wonderful distinction and it's a wonderful way of thinking about the whole notion of leadership, the leadership system. If you have not read Bad Leadership, it's a really fascinating look into how that system works. Now, we also discussed briefly the notion of definitions. I don't understand how we as educators move forward if we don't have common definitions or clearly understood definitions around what the difference between leadership education, leadership studies, leadership learning, leadership training, leadership development. What do all these things mean? What are we actually trying to do when we use those terms? Oftentimes, we see we tend to use them synonymously. And in her book, Professionalizing Leadership, she tries to distinguish some of that terminology, which I think is absolutely wonderful. And in Professionalizing Leadership, she goes in depth when it comes to the military. 
the military is one of the only organizations that really promotes this notion of lifelong learning. I've been thinking about that in the context of universities. What if universities became that place for what we know as lifelong learning? Don't have an answer there, just something I'm kind of thinking about right now. If you have not read the work of Barbara Kellerman, please be sure to check it out. I've placed several of her books that we mentioned in this podcast episode in the notes. When I think of Barbara, three words come to mind, leader, followers, context. Be well, everybody. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.